Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Bound the Context. I'm your host, Ryan Schraber. With me today, I have Leah Cunningham. Uh, welcome to the program, Leah. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to see you, Ryan. Absolutely. So, Leah, uh, you're the engineering manager at Verica. Um, tell us, uh, our, our folks, a bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I've been at Verica for just under a month now, and uh, the company is really cool. It's it's all about providing continuous providing a continuous verification platform to help proactively uncover system weaknesses and security flaws, with the goal really to help maximize business availability and performance. So it's really the next step. And the evolution of chaos engineering so it's it's pretty slick so i'm responsible for the platform team there right now um, but it's a startup company it's casey rosenthal and aaron reinhardt are the co-founders and it's super fun like it's uh it's one of those sales i've never been part of a startup at this early in the process so it's, i'm learning a ton which is really exciting and everybody's really it's, it's just a fun environment to be part of right now it's like drinking from a fire hose but in a good way you know That's i've awesome. been in a I've been in tech now for 20 years in different capacities, so it's uh, it's it's fun to keep it fresh. That's a fun part about tech is you always get to reinvent yourself and learn new things. Mm-hmm. Like there's never a dull moment, so it's it's been good. So so you know the the program is about problem solving, and you know as a role as an engineering manager, I guess a platform manager, but really throughout your career, like what types of problems do you tend to sort sort of sort of focus on? What help our help us understand? Honestly, a lot of it's just people, people related, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, the world of software development or just technology in a whole, like you're, it's human beings solving problems for other human beings in a lot of ways, whether it's, you know, whether it's through software, whether it's through infrastructure, it's just ultimately, I think it's a way to make people's lives better. Like that's, I think mm-hmm. the greater, the greater, that's the altruistic piece of it. Um, for me, at least, like how, how can we use how can we come together to build something that makes people's lives better, easier, more, whatever that looks like for them. A lot of times along the way though, you know, just as throughout my career in either a leadership capacity or an agile coach capacity, or even back when I first started out in tech doing desktop support, you know, it was all about helping people and helping people navigate through problems. And um, at least in a lot of the, in a lot of the capacity of where I've worked, like there's a certain amount of, stress and anxiety that comes with mm-hmm. like anytime something's yeah. not working right it's like our it kind of triggers our fight or flight response so i think being able to help bring home to that as well is really important too but a lot of what i've anchored on is actually people problems you know i think yeah. a lot of times folks gravitate towards like well what tool is going to fix this for me what process could i put in place or maybe it's a new technology that i need and fundamentally like it's rarely that simple it's always it's always the people part like so that's that's where I tend to spend a lot of my time, especially lately, is focusing more on more on that. Like, what is, what sort of environment, like, what's a healthy, ideal environment look like for folks to be able to prosper, you know, and be able to help identify and solve their problems and have the autonomy and authority to do that. Um, and not a lot of the older I get, the more I'm realizing like that's not that's not super common in, in a lot of corporations. So I, it's I really try to anchor on creating that space. Well, as we were talking like earlier, career, you mentioned the help desk and you mentioned sort of early on, you, you could develop empathy for the people kind of calling in software wasn't working or things going on. So how did that early sort of empathy sort of, I guess, for the end users sort of help shape 
sort of, you know, your, your career and career arc? Oh, it's huge. Like I was at, I worked at the University of Minnesota for a number of years in desktop support and also help desk too. And, you know, working with these really, uh, the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Minnesota was one of my main clients for a long time. And like just really brilliant, wonderful people, like science, like it was so neat. I would go into, I would do something simple, like what I thought was simple, which was like hooking up a printer to a computer that was connected to a mass spectrometer. And I would ask the research scientists who had no idea how to do what I was doing to help them. But I'm like, well, what is what does this do? Like, what's this piece of equipment do? And then I'd learn all about their research. And like, uh-huh. for me, it was really cool to see like, wow, this little thing that I'm doing is really helping them advance and better cancer treatment or, you know, and what, whatever topic that may be. Um, so I really had a lot of empathy for that because I was like, my goodness, they're so smart in these other areas, but stuff that we could easily maybe take for granted here, like being able to see how to make their lives better. Also, like when something wasn't going right, like uh, grant writing can be really stressful for for uh, academics and professors in that capacity. So little things like the appetite for nothing working right on their computer when they're trying to get a grant deadline in place, you know, like they're super stressed and being able to come in and just, you know, listen and help help get their stuff working so they can focus on what they need to do to do their job was really important. Why I wanted to really kind of, why I shifted my career partway through to get more upstream into more of the software engineering side of the world is I, I was getting frustrated because people would call in with these, you know, like a doctor or a research scientist or just a history professor, you name it, or was trying trying to just do their job, but was getting hit by this kind of poorly written, poorly architected, poorly designed software. And they would just call like, I don't know what to do, please help. And I was just, I felt, I remember feeling so bad for them. I'm like, wow, we're really blocking you from doing what you need to do, which which, you know, it's what your craft is. So I, I was able to develop just a lot of empathy for folks, being able to put myself in their shoes and trying to understand what they're going through just to try to help make it better. And that was why I wanted to get more into the engineering side of the world. Like, how do we start building and designing better systems that are more intuitive, that don't require, like, what if help desk didn't exist? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, what if we could yeah. build stuff in a way where we, I know that's kind of all, a, a little too pie in the sky, but what if things were built in such a way where you actually don't even need a help menu? Like, it's just intuitive, you know. So so when you get engaged, you mentioned sort of listening there. If you get engaged and you're working with teams, sort of teams in general, like, how do you, do you often go in and are you there to sort of solve a problem or, or as you get, I guess, engaged with teams, like how do you spot and figure out like what's really maybe a challenge here? And then, you know, is your role to sort of help that team itself sort out those challenges and get to sort of a better space? Yeah. And I, I think there's an art form to that. I think so often a lot of people want to just come in and tell you what to do, just to fix all your problems, you know, and, while I could maybe do that, I might be wrong. And probably it would be rather presumptuous of me to get dropped into an environment and be like, okay, just do X, Y, and Z. And you see a lot of like consultants. I don't mean to put yeah. a bad, no, bad rap on consultants <laughs> for a while too, but it's like, just come in, just please tell me what to do. I, it's just easier. Yeah. Please tell me what to do. But I think that's, you're missing out on an opportunity to help guide somebody into a different kind of approach, learning how to approach their problems. So I think a lot of what I do is, you know, listening, observing, 
you know, and really just spending a lot of time listening for folks and experimentation. I approach a lot of what I do is like, well, let's try this, you know, nice. you know, have you thought about this? And just through asking the, um, through humble inquiry, really just by kind of that gentle art of asking questions and seeking to better understand can sometimes lead people like you frame conversations in such a way and engage in true active listening. You can um, really help guide to really good solutions, really. And I think it, it, it takes longer, you know, it, sometimes yes. do I get tired where I'm like, Oh, just, just do this thing, you know? And I'm like, okay, that's not, I'm probably wrong. So we shouldn't just do this thing. Mm -hmm. So I try to really embrace the notion of like demonstrating active listening. What I'm hearing people, what I'm hearing you say is blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what are your thoughts about this? Shall we try this? And I, I'm very much a, very much a fan of building a learning organization too. And what I think that looks like is like, hey, we let's try this. We're going to hypothesize that by doing this thing is going to solve this problem for us. And you know, it might, it might not, but let's let's run an experiment and see what we learn from it. If it doesn't work, that's great. We still learned something and we learned that that didn't work for us. Mm -hmm. And let's try something different. And I think by creating that environment and kind of that openness and experimentation, like you, you get these really important things like psychological safety. People feel safe to experiment. They know like, you know, by, by having someone in a leadership position say, hey, I might be wrong. Like, let's try this. Like you're demonstrating your own failability as a leader, which mm -hmm. I think is very important. And you're willing, you're curious by asking, by asking questions and giving time to respond. I think you're really, it's a really powerful environment that you can set up just by kind of these simple behaviors um, that I wasn't, when I younger in my career, I wasn't great with that. You know, this is definitely yeah. a honed skill. I did not like silence in conversations. Oh, mm -hmm. I would just, I would get uncomfortable. I'm an extrovert. So like <laughs> I have learned over the years um, <clears throat> and I have a great teacher and my husband who's, you know, an, it, a, you know, introverted engineer, but needing to allow that space and time to allow that silence to fill up. Cause a lot of people need that as permission to speak. Yeah. So like I have uh, at my my desk here to help laugh, I have so many little fidget toy things because I just know this about me that, you know, if I'm in a meeting or whatever and it, we're having a tough conversation and if there's silence, I might be doing this like out of camera view that you can't see it. Because <laughs> I've, I've got to know like I, that's my cue to like just shut my mouth and use my ears and listen to what's what's being said, you know. Well, you, you mentioned you mentioned coaching. I often think about coaching is sort of holding up a mirror to a team, and a good coach sort of does the listening, holds up the mirror. But as someone who's done the transition, and you alluded to this earlier, sometimes the people that hired you, they kind of want they want solutions to their problems, and 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 as a coach, you got to help them understand their problems, and that that they can come up with their own solutions to problems. But it generally takes longer and it's not as kind of a quick fix. And I'm often noticed that is that if you do it right, like you're describing, it, it's going to stick, it's going to be more permanent, but it does take longer to come around. At the same time, you know, lots of times early on, people want context-free answers to questions. Like, it's just like, just tell me what I need to do, you know? And so I do think that the long-term approach of sort of holding up the, the, the mirror to them help skip them there, but you have to balance and really you have to be the people that hired you to bring you in. You got to say, it's going to happen. Just, just be patient. It's going to happen. And mm -hmm. I know that's, I've experienced sometimes where they're looking at you like, 
just, just tell us what to do. And it's like, no, you know, and, and so with all that to say is, you know, as you get into organizations, if coaching and helping teams learn is sort of the long-term answer, how do you gently sort of mitigate the, um, the pressure that kind of like, just, you know, helping them get through that next step or just giving them the answers. Do you, do you ever sense that when you're doing these transitions? Yeah, I think I like what you call out about balance there. That is important. Like you do have to find, you do have to have results at the same time. You have to have that forward momentum. I think when I think about software, like what, what does software delivery performance look like? A lot of folks might anchor on just productivity. They'll talk about Mm -hmm. stuff like velocity. I I cringe. I get hives when I hear, well, velocity is going up. I'm like, oh, well, how do you know? So you're moving faster. How do you know you're moving in the right direction? Like, Uh you know, or like I'll hear other like, oh, it's been a while since I've encountered this in in a culture, but I'll hear stuff like utilization, like, resource utilization our resources are fully utilized i'm like when you say do you mean human beings is that what you're talking about when you see resource like that's not cool or i'll hear stuff like you know lines of code or look at how big this look at how big this commit was i'm like oh my god why was that why was that commit so big so i think um i'll start anchoring on the uh, notion around like what does good software delivery performance look like and i to help kind of bolster that, I'll look to experts. Like there, there's a book uh, by Dr. Nicole Ferguson and Jess Humble and Gene Kim called Accelerate, and they take really the um, they they have tons and tons of research and data to support. Like, hey, like here's actually what healthy organization software engineering organizations look like. They'll focus on stuff like lead time. Like, so an idea comes in or a customer need comes in, how long is that realized? Like that you can start working on right away, you know, while you're still coaching and doing these other things, but you can bring people to a sense of action for that. But look at other stuff like your deployment frequency, like when was the last time you shipped to production? How frequently are you doing that? And starting to pay attention on those metrics. Um, the other one too around change failure rate, so percentage. So like when you do make a change, what how frequently does it fail? And by the way, it's going to, failures are going to happen, like especially in the complex world that we live in. So how do you then anchor on resiliency? If you accept that failure is going to happen, you can then shift on, well, how do I be more resilient? Um, how do I build more resilient systems, both socio and technical to bounce back from that? And then like that mean time to resolution too, like those are important metrics as well. So like those are the four key metrics that they reference in the book. And I think anchoring on those as not punitive metrics, because that's, you have to mm-hmm. be careful you know, your measurement, like, oh, okay, we'll just yeah. punish, like, like no, no, because <laughs> safety is also really important, too. But as you're starting to shift the culture, how do you get, how do you get that cross alignment, you know, and how do you, how do you guide people in that journey while you're, while you're holding the mirror up and coaching and kind of taking that through? The, the, the metrics you referenced, one of the things I loved about them is they just organize them into two buckets, there's speed and stability. If, yep. if, you, if you think about that one, the, the and 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 the two line up, you know, to one and the two line up to the other. A lot of times, there's been such a focus on the speed piece, right? And I think the stability in there and their balance, like, right? If 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 you're going fast, but it's not stable, that's not good. And if you're super super stable, but you're going slow, that's not good either. So I, I think it's interesting how one they take these and balance them. And the second thing I think is great about that one is. 
you actually can go fast and have higher stability. Like, you know, and I used to, I think I remember reading, maybe it's from Mary Poppendike, but talking about, you know, you can't go fast unless quality is higher. Maybe it came from lean. And I sort of early on, I understood that concept and like, unless quality is high, you cannot not sustainably go fast. You can go fast in a very brief instant, but all the, the quality and bugs and stuff are going to catch up with you if you don't focus on mm-hmm. quality. And I do think that of all the ways that we in software have tried to measure productivity, uh, you reference some lines of code and those sort of things. I do think the kind of the four metrics, two on speed and two on stability are about the best that we can get in terms of, you know, about the best metrics. And I love that they've been measuring these over time. So there's at least some reference and benchmark out there and still growing those benchmarks over time. Because, you know, often when organizations want you to come in, they're like, well, how are we doing compared to X? People always, in my experience, want to know, like, well, how are we doing? But are we better or worse than, you know, X and these um, metrics and, and the benchmarks, at least you can place a team and said, you know, you're doing decently well on this. Here's what other teams are doing. But anyway. Yeah, I know. Um, it's, it, I love that you referenced Mary and Mary and Tom are awesome. Like, uh, yeah, I'm lucky enough to live not too far from them. So like I've uh-huh. been at their house and they're just delightful. Like I love spending time with them. Um, the pandemic has put a damper on that. But dampers, well, at, the pandemic's been crappy for a lot of, a lot of things, a lot mm-hmm. of different reasons. But yeah. you, that whole notion around I think it's a misnomer that you have to trade off speed. You have you have to be able to forsake stability for st- speed. And I think a lot of the practices that, I, sadly, I think Scrum, where it's at now, is, has really become an anti-pattern in terms of getting to true agility. I think, and I think the essence behind like Scrum is great from like a communication and organizational framework. Period. That's a you know, it's it's a great way at helping teams to figure out like how do you, if you struggle with decomposing your work into smaller chunks, it's helpful for that. If you struggle with communicating, it, it gives you some framework for that. But the, I had an engineer who's a, who reported to me. He's a good friend of mine now. But he once told me he's like, Leo Scrum is exhausting. You're always sprinting. You never get a break. You know, and I, and. I kind of thought about that. I'm like, well, you're really just condensing and we're taking a lot of these waterfall or like kind of that short term kind of thinking and like condensing it in to a two week or a three week or whatever, whatever your sprint is. But what I like about this notion where where like the tenants of lean come through. So through Accelerate references that book, Tom and Mary reference that. like anchoring on like the principles of lean or mm-hmm. will, will really help get you to healthier, more resilient, stable software, <clears throat> you'll have, you know, being able to get to a point of minimizing the amount of work in progress, building quality in, like, these are really important. Like, who's, oh, I'll come back and write tests later. No, you won't. You're not going to have time because chances are you're going to be focused on this other thing you have to build. And so how do you, how do you really anchor? Like, what does quality look like for you and your engineering organization? And by the way, it, it should be the engineers and your team coming up with these quality, what's important to them. I think, you know, these are just really important tenants to build in to when you're, when you're developing software. Cause I, I, um, I think a lot about like the sins of my past, like I, you know, when I was first getting into scrum, I was like, Oh God, I would do that. I would forecast. 
I would forecast sprints worth of work and be like, okay, six sprints, I'll, I'll give some fluff and it'll be eight sprints. And next thing you know, I accidentally sent us on dateline driven death marches. Like I did this. Uh, I'm like, yes. oh no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. Um, so I think, you know, now I, I have a tendency to focus more on less on the process on how to get there and more on like, what, what does the team need? What's lacking right now? Where are some of our, where are some of our deficiencies or pain points coming from and how can we maybe try different ways to communicate or collaborate to, to, to get to them? Uh, Woody Zool is coming to mind. Like he's a delight, delightful man. You should have him on your program, by the okay. way, he's just delightful okay. to talk to, but like the whole thing is really the champion of mob programming. And he's not, that's not about speed or stability. It's about teaching teams how to work better together. Cause you know, if you have a good group yeah. of people that know how to work together, they're going to build some pretty amazing stuff. So. Well, nice. You mentioned, uh, and it's funny. It's the second time his name. I talked to um, our friend Joel Tosi yesterday and no, uh, he brought up his, yeah, yeah. He said to say hi. Uh, he's, he brought up his name too. Is somebody he's been talking about. Like, mm, so I took his name down there. It's funny. Um, somebody I don't know to, to uh, I'll follow with him. Uh, two days, uh, his name twice have come up. So uh, you mentioned earlier that a term I've been hearing more about psychological safety. And I, and I think this is a term that has come around the last few years. Can you maybe talk a bit about what that is? And in your experience, why is it important for teams to be considering that? Yeah, it is interesting that it has, we're, we are starting to hear more and more about it, aren't we? But like, yeah, we are. I think, I think uh, it's, is it, is it, John Willis and maybe some others. I know some of the folks in sort of that community have been, or at least that's where I, I tend to hear about it. Um, but go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, John Willis and Jess Humble. Actually, it's a lot, like across different industries. I think what what it isn't for starters is I don't. It's not the same thing as comfort. Like, hmm. so I think sometimes people misconstrue like safety with comfort. Like, so I just want to call that out. And I think there's a certain amount of trust too that needs to be in place, but safety is not the same thing as trust either. So it, it's really not about being comfortable. It's not about avoiding conflict. And in fact, engineering really relies on that respectful, constructive criticism in order to build these solutions that we can then iterate off of. But the number one thing that that safety entails is we need to be able to care about one another and that that's kind of you know Woody. I'm not gonna I'm gonna mention Woody Zool again, but yeah. with mob programming, like that whole approach to engineering, and and I believe even where pair programming came into play with the XP days is about getting people to care about each other and appreciate each other's styles and differences. When people when people and organizations don't feel safe, they're less likely to talk, you know, or there or they, there might be the more aggressive kind of dominating voices in the organization that speak up, which is which is dangerous because some of like the richest best ideas I've ever heard came from like the quietest person, you know, in the room. Um, I when safety exists, and I and I, I really that is really on leaders to exhibit safety to create mm -hmm. that. Like it's not on individuals to contribute to it, but leaders absolutely have to create that environment of safety and respect where and we where we allow conflict to happen, but in a in a healthy way, you know, it should be encouraged. Um, it definitely should be leaders should demonstrate their own failability too. I think we've all worked I worked with with one VP 
where he was told me once, he's like, I've never had a project fail before. We can't have this fail. And I'm like, okay, I think you're lying to me, but like, how have you not? I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm more 90% yeah. of my life is failures. You know, just 10% has been pretty good, I guess. So I think acknowledging our own failability sends that message like, hey, we're human. It's okay that you're human too. And then being curious and asking questions is so important, you know, and, and modeling that behavior. Like when, the, when a leader is genuinely inquisitive, not in a way to like berate or try to one up somebody, but just to learn, it really it creates the safety where people feel like, like they could, they have this freedom, you know? Um, so I think why it's so important is for starters, I think there's this notion around task conflict versus personal conflict. Sometimes mm -hmm. people conflate the two. Um, personal conflict is if I'm being mean to you and we're taking it personally, or like my ego gets in the way because you gave feedback on something I did that it was like, and you know, it's yeah. not good. But for engineering, especially, like you need task conflict. Like if I'm going to have a pacemaker installed, I'm you know, I don't need one, by the way, don't worry. But like, if I'm going to have a pacemaker installed, I want to know that all the engineers involved in designing and building that unit that's going to like be a life or death situation, that they had a ton of task conflict to come to a really good resolution on what it is they're trying to build. And I think in the absence where people don't feel comfortable to have that conflict, you risk building the wrong thing, or you risk building it poorly, or, you know, it just, there comes a lot of fragility inherently in what you're building. So I think safety is so important. And maybe we're hearing more about it now because of the kind of the woke, the woke world that we're in, mm -hmm. you know, over the past, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, I mean, yeah. as we're talking right now, the, the trial over um, George Floyd's murder is happening. Um, so we're having as a nation, these harder conversations around what, you know, what does safety look like? Like what is, and being able to try to empathize with each other. I think empathy is like the superpower that we all need right now. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why we're hearing more about it too. Um, so I think trying to weave safety and it's hard because it's not like there's no checklist for safety, although I'm sure somebody's yeah. going to try to devise it and try to sell it and maybe they'll make some money mm -hmm. off of it too. We'll, we'll see if, uh, and the agile safety checklist. Right? I was just, yeah, I'm sure I'm it'll sure be part of uh, safe version. Uh, whatever. Yeah, it'll be part of safe version six or yeah. seven. I'm sure the scaled agile framework will figure it out. But yeah. I wish it was that simple, actually. Like, yeah. but yeah. it's not. And like, what safety looks like for you might be different than me. But I think mm -hmm. establishing from a team, like, I think a great starting point for teams is like having. Esther Derby is awesome. She's got, she has this book like making retrospectives great or yeah. great. I, sh I should be, I should, if I'm going to cite something, I should remember the title better, but no, in there she has that. a, she has a framework for a team working agreement. And I think like, what a, what a great healthy way to start, you know, start with like, how do we, what are our core values as a team? How do we want to communicate? How do we act in accordance to these values? What do we do when conflict arises? Cause we know it will. So mm -hmm. like, what's our, what's our path for that look like? It, it's really funny. I, the more, the older I get, the more I want to be like, I want to tell people, hey, don't spend all this money on a on an MBA. You don't need it. Just go to contact your local elementary school and ask them to have a kindergarten program for business professionals and just go back to kindergarten just for a little bit. Because this is all the stuff we were taught as little, little kids. Somehow we forget about it along the way. It is interesting. When we, um, in our design thinking class, we ask people to, to, to draw 
you know, there's often, especially in business audience, oh my God, you know, it's like we all used to draw, like we, we grew up with art and, and doing that. And then somewhere along the way, it, it became a, a, one, a class you did once a week. And then somewhere along the way, for a lot of us, it'd just be something that kind of dropped by the wayside. So well, I want to hear, I want to hear off one, one thing, if you don't mind, is like we, you and I have discussions about there's sort of this building the right thing and building the thing right. And a lot of us have come, we started on the what I call the right hand side of that, building the thing right, the right test. And the, but over time, a theme in this program is many of us have realized you kind of get to are we working on the right thing? Like ultimately, a lot of us, you described it as going upstream, like we, we kind of orient towards sort of building the right thing. I've seen some, you know, engineers in my time that naturally gravitate those. And I've, I, we also have others and really good ones that kind of tend to like to stay in, the, you know, building the, the thing right. Have you had any tips or, or ideas or suggestions? I mean, curiosity, I think, would be one thing. But how do you get maybe, you know, engineers focused more on just the, 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 the tools and the right methods and those to a bit care more about are, are, you, are you doing the right thing? Have you come up with any sort of guidance or advice on that simply put i think in order to know if we're building the right thing is we we don't really know if we're doing that until we get in this case the software until we get the software that we're building into the hands of the people who need to benefit from that software so how that how you approach that is differently like there's different kind of frames of thought there but being able to iterate, you know, be able to get something that solves some problem. Maybe it's not the big pie in the sky problem that you think is there, um, but being able to get something forward where you can get feedback if you're on the right path or not. I think uh, I think even creating a culture of demos is really important. I think mm -hmm. that also helps for safety too, but like, hey, here's this thing I'm building. It's not perfect yet. Let me show the code. Let's walk through it. And just creating that culture of where people are comfortable sharing and demoing their code. Um, but I, th I think fundamentally the biggest goal is to how do how do we get something into the hands of people so they can use the software so we can learn from them, um, and that's that balance too. There's there's that speed thing again, like not yeah. you don't you don't want to forget about quality. How do you, that that's got to be baked into what you do. But instead of trying to <clears throat> big the, build this big grandiose thing, how do you do a slice of it that will still make someone's life better so you can get feedback and course correct quickly. But I think a lot of us just get on these blind humans love plans. I was so excited in a way when the pandemic started in a way I'm like, oh, great. Maybe now we'll finally learn that we have no control over anything and we'll stop with these silly plans, you know, and, and I totally was wrong. But I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, maybe we'll learn because ultimately at the end of the day, all we can control are our attitudes and how we choose to respond to things. That's yeah. it. Um, but, you know, I. I know that's not reality. I still hear about organizations doing like quarterly planning and big upfront planning or like, and I'm like, I, I know it's helpful. I think you might feel better. I think people mm -hmm. feel good. Like, oh, we're doing stuff. We're doing all this thing, but no one's really, do you really pause to ask, like, are we doing the right thing? Or, hey, we just came from that big planning session, that big yeah. period. Like, did we, actually, did we actually pause to see if like yeah. that's the right <laughs> thing that we're building? And I think that's again like a misalignment. We're we're getting we're focusing maybe on the wrong thing. So I think anchoring folks back to working software is our number one priority here of what we're trying to do. And the only way to know we're if we're building the right thing is to get feedback from the folks who are trying to benefit from it. So whatever that path looks like, you know, maybe it's a 
I know we're all remote right now, so that's tough, but like sitting in a room together where your customers and they're with you and just been like, mm-hmm. hey, like work on that. What do you think? You know, I know it's bare bones what you're looking for, but it's. No, um, I think that we, we had talked, I think, what I see now is about 20 years into the Agile, there's a lot of return back to the the spirit of Agile over the all the program ceremonies and the dogmatic sort of stuff that has, has evolved. And I think that it's 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 interesting because it went from something that's a concept, it's it's a it's a sort of a way of being to super formalized, and a lot of people have forgotten along the way. And you know, one of the things I learned, I, I was telling you about design thinking. David Kelly is one of the founders of IDEO, and he talked about like one of the the principles I'm thinking is a bias for action. Like have enough of an idea and then go do something, go get out and get some research, go talk to people, build some prototypes, test some prototypes. But this sort of big planning is doesn't really benefit anybody. Um, and, and unfortunately, at times I, I hear my clients like we have a two day planning event coming up, you know, and plan, plan, plan. I just sort of just kind of you know laugh if you will and it's like okay well <laughs> i hope that serves you well um, our new program increment is starting we need to plan uh, yes. and yes. yeah and i honestly that's a big that what we're talking about is a big reason why i pivoted you know i've been an agile coach for a number of years but i was getting disheartened <laughs> with mm-hmm. it i'm like oh man um like the people, the guy behind SAFE is the same guy behind RUP, the rational unified process. And I'm like, oh no, like, and I think anchoring on the dogma of it and not thinking about how pragmatically is this going to fit into the environment that I'm in right now is is kind of the, the harder part of, like, again, what you said, like the essence of what this whole notion around Agile is all about. A big reason I, I got out and pivoted out of coaching is it was starting to become too synonymous with project management, with program management. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. elements of that in all what we do. Like there's elements of project management and so much of our jobs. But it's, I guess, the best example I could give is like a like an agile program manager might be like, well, here's how you're going to manage your bugs. And here's your, here's your board. Here's how we're going to do it. And whereas I would be like, well, why, why do we have, why do we have bugs? Like what's going on? Like, should we talk? Like, you know, and kind of just think through it differently. So I guess what I saw happening is I believe Martin Fowler coined this phrase around the agile movement is this semantic diffusion. Like the further we get away from the core essence of what, of what agile really was, you know, as a concept in 2000, the more we were gravitating towards this back to this kind of bureaucratic command and control type thinking. Um, Marty Kagan wrote a really good blog post called the revenge of the PMO. Like it's brilliant. Like you should link that. And and, I'll completely love the title. But I think it's this, this human desire. Like we don't generally like um, predictability. We gravitate mm-hmm. towards we want to be able to predict the future. We want stability. We want to know what's coming. And I guess there, to me, there's like a Zen moment when you, once you realize like, that's not a thing, like there's this illusion of control, but you actually don't have it. And then you can shift away your thinking of like, okay, well, if I know I can't predict the future, how do I then get into a mindset where I can be resilient? I can be adaptable and you know, and be, build a culture and mindset around that. I don't hear enough talk about that, you know, um, which is why I wanted to get back into engineering management because I'm like, I can't be a coach nice. anymore. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to go into 
conversations where people will be like, we're going to do safe. We're going to do the scaled agile framework. And I'm like, why? What problem is that going to solve for you? Well, oftentimes it's the the C-levels or the folks at top need to have influence and control over what's going on or they need better alignment. Because again, I think you feel better doing it. It's not, yeah. it's not a fault of anyone's. I just think it's this false illusion of control that you're kidding yourself. Like, you know, and, mm-hmm. and from an engineer or an individual contributor to play in that environment, I could see how for some folks that might be very comfortable, you know, and predictable because we are human. But I think it, I think it steals amount of, an amount of creativity that engineering so desperately needs, you know, and I think in the long term, you'll likely create more problems than you solve from it. But- it's funny. Um, one, one of my guests, Tom, I've known for a long time, uh, coined the term to me, Agile Theater. And Agile Theater was described when you look around and it looks like everything's Agile. It's got all the right things, all the right things are happening. But under the covers, it's just, it's a shit show. Like no matter knows what's happening, it's going on, there's not alignment and those sort of things. And it's like, and, uh, and usually the more that you the coach, you can usually s- soon kind of sniff out like what, what's really going on here. Um, but no, you're right. I think that <laughs> the return of the rise of the PMO, what was that called? The, revenge the, the, of the, the return of the PMO <laughs> or revenge of the PMO. Yeah. it's That's one of the funniest things I've heard all day. Uh, so, uh, all right. So who have been, we, we've talked about a number of different people you mentioned, who have been some of your influences along the way? And then for you people could be sort of movements. Who, who have been some of the folks that have influenced your thinking? Oh my gosh. Like so many people, like, I mean, family, friends, my parents, you know, I mean, if you're thinking industry leaders, I guess I'll kind of start with youth. I mean, I have, I was lucky enough to have really great high school teachers, um, you know, like, and learning about like literature and just like how, how to think differently, you know, like mm-hmm. um, my folks too, like my dad grew up real poor. I mean, he was born on a poor farm, you know, and just making sure like his, his, like I didn't grow up in that environment because he didn't want us to. So like the value of the value of hard work, you know, I think mm-hmm. was instilled in me there. I have two older sisters too. Who I just, I learned a lot from and still do. And, you know, my husband as well. Like, so I think I've been really lucky in having a lot of, good influences just shaping me as, as an adult, you know, or a childhood through yeah. to be an adult. Um, in terms of like a professional context, when I was at the University of Minnesota, I was lucky enough to work with some really strong women leaders, you know, and this was early, this was like early 2004. I remember I had a, my boss's boss at that time. I was curious, should I get an MBA? The U of M at that point paid for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was like probably 2004. And, you know, he was like, if you could, but you just, you're getting married soon. Don't you want to work, focus on having children? And I was like, oh, that doesn't no. seem right. Like why, you know, but to have like also a strong female leader support, like, yeah, don't listen to that. Go, go be you and do you, you know, and now like in this era of me too, which is again, mm-hmm. we're waking up as a society. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that was told to me in my early twenties, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, so I think, that whole piece in terms of like industry thought leaders and movements when i learned about extreme programming to me that just clicked like that made so much sense like so the kent beck and that whole that whole mindset like those guys like walt cunningham and kent beck and martin fowler like thought leaders in that area and that was introduced to me through like david hussman who was a mentor yeah. and a friend of mine here in, in minneapolis and it's just kind of funny how i mean that's how you and i know each other yeah. you know and that's 
that's how I met Casey Rosenthal, my boss, my CEO now is like kind of one of the pioneers in the whole chaos engineering movement, which I think is as insightful and impactful that Expedia was back in the back in the day. That's why I'm really excited yeah. to be in that space. But yeah, Tom and Mary Poppendink, the list, the list goes on of how many people I've been influenced by. But I think, you know, more so too, just friends. Like I have good friends, Sean, Sean Sherman and Dana Thompson are right. They're, they're nothing to do with tech, but what their focus is, is they have a nonprofit and a profit. Like the, the for-profit is something called the sous chef play on words. Sean is Pine Ridge India or Native American reservation okay. that he grew up on, but their whole culture and mission is to bring and reintroduce people back to their indigenous foods that were taken away from them when Hmm. The colonizers came in and like, so being able to like help, help these traumatized people like heal through getting connected back in with their ancestry and their roots is so powerful. So they have a nonprofit called the Natives, Native American Indigenous Food Labs, I think, or for something like that, but it's all okay. about re-educating and reintroducing people. So it's, I guess I look around and there's so many people that I've been inspired by <clears throat> and I think I think the common theme, if I were to like string it all together, is be demonstrating and living lives where you're authentic. You're, you know, you're, you're your authentic selves. You're, you're true and true to yourself and your authentic self. And I think that that just really has helped me remember that I need to be true to my authentic self and care about the values that I care about that are important to me and, and not deviate from them. Then, you know, I think, yeah, it's funny. I could go on. I, I probably. It's like, I almost feel like I'm inspired every time I have a conversation with someone or just listen to someone and what they're up to, because it's, it's just so cool. You know, I love like humans for as rotten as we can be as a species to each yeah. other, we can do some really awesome things too. So I try to focus on that. What's when the last time we, we saw each other, it was, it was for the chaos event up in Minneapolis. And I remember the time talking to, briefly the husband and he's like this is like the xp community like you know 15 years ago it's like nice and small like people really care about it and i'm when i got up there i remember um going to the event and it felt like such a small community of people who were sort of in the know before it got bigger you know but i think so far and i've been i'm not isn't it obviously as much as you are it feels like the chaos community has still managed to to retain that sort of small community feel I mean, I think that's been purposed by design. It, it seems like that they've seen what's happened to other sort of movements. Um, but do you know, do you get a sense from the, 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 your involvement with the chaos community that that's, that it feels like a special community? I can't just, it's hard to put my, my, my finger on it. But when I, when I got to the event, I was like, well, everybody here is one, a lot smarter than I am. And secondly is, but super open and genuine and nice. And there weren't like egos, or at least that I could see it. It just felt like people were all about sharing of what's working and, and what's not working. Has um, that been your experience? Yeah, although I think it probably will change just as these things do. You know, I remember, I remember at that event, Husman gave Casey Rosenthal, like, I think he said something like, you know, be, be prepared to let, let it go, like let what you mm. love go. And I, you know, I'm like, what does that mean? And I kind of, there are movements where like, it is human nature to want to monetize things and mm -hmm. kind of add structure to things. Like, I don't think, I don't think IT is safe, but I don't think safe is evil inherently. I really don't yeah, believe yeah. it. I just think, I think when you start to, 
find ways to monetize things and certify things and you know and that sort of stuff you you know it change it does change you know these big conferences change the that chaos community day that David and I put together that was very intentional and deliberate we wanted to keep it very small because we wanted you know we uh, that was something we just wanted to keep we wanted to have the spirit of sparking a conversation to bring that forward we didn't want it to be a big vendor event where there was we did have some sponsors like SPS Commerce in town sponsored at FGM which I, I don't know I think they were C prime by them but then they were still under the label DevGM sponsored as well but a lot of that was just kind of like all of just on the back of me and David and kind of footing the own bill just to create that space because we we so badly like we didn't want to we wanted more of an unconference style approach um, <laughs> and I think you'll find pockets of it too of people who get passionate about the craft as well but it's kind of the ugly side of capitalism you know is like we yeah. and that's you know I'm a hypocrite because I work and work and live in a capitalist society but. <laughs> I think you kind of you miss out on the greater give it you run the risk of missing out missing out on the greater good if you lose that sense of community like why are we in this you know and i think the concept of chaos engineering like bringing a bunch of like-minded people together that kind of are curious which was really the xp days too so i heard i mean i was yeah. i was really early in my career and i was running around doing desktop support so i hadn't you know i wasn't there in the infancy but I think, yeah, I think there is a certain community and a certain movement behind it. And these things will come and go, you know, there'll yeah. be a new thing. But I, if you kind of step back and like, there's a theme that runs through all of that, which is, I think the themes kind of anchor on the human side of it, like um, the human, again, resiliency, frailty, all, all the stuff that kind of makes us human. How do you then, you know, like XP was big on, you know, test-driven development, continuous integration, because we knew like, okay, like this is a thing that's th these things are going to break. Like, so how do you, how do you build more resiliency in upfront? How do you build quality in upfront? And chaos engineering and like what we're trying to do at Verica with getting that, getting that confidence in around availability and security to anticipate stuff before it happens is really powerful. So I think, but, but yeah, I, I know what you mean about the community of it. I probably sound a little cynical because I just I've seen what I've seen what happened with the agile movement, and I'm like, oh, that's that's not fun anymore. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it is, but it isn't. Like the how many certifications do you have? And, and I'm certified too, like yeah, I'm certified something. But um, but yeah, I think capturing the essence. I think how do you get people to fall in love with the craft that they first got into, you know, it kind of probably ties into that statement I made earlier about don't go to MBA school, go back to kindergarten for a little bit and figure out how to work <laughs> together. <laughs> On that note too, it was funny. I read, um, I think it was a Ted talk. It was this marshmallow challenge, not, not the one where you shove all the marshmallows in your yeah. mouth, but it was like, you take, I think it was like 20 spaghetti sticks and some string and some marshmallows. And the idea is like how, how tall of a tower can you build? And I, have, I can't remember the name of the TED Talk. I'll have to find it and send you the link for it. But the the best performers for this exercise were kindergartners. Like when they did this study, mm -hmm. I forget. The worst performers were MBA students. And wow. the reason why, because they watched the kindergartners like play and experiment and have fun with it and fail and like try to build their tower and would knock over. And they just learned from it each time they went, where MBA students took a very kind of bureaucratic they, they yeah, planned yeah. too much actually is what it boils down Structure to yeah they planned way too much instead of playing so 
I thought it was kind of interesting. Sorry, okay, so, I diverged way far off. No, of your... no, this is no, this is awesome. This is this this is awesome. So let me let's wrap it up with maybe the most important topic or question of the day is what are you listening to? Um, oh, music. Yeah, I, I'm such an eclectic set. If I need to work and like I can't, I can't work with words with music mm-hmm. with words, you know. So I love. I'll listen to a lot of jazz like Grant Green or Miles Davis, John Coltrane, oh, Stan Getz. All yes, those guys. Green um, is just amazing. Um, um, yeah, I love it. Like, so like, I love jazz. I, I love New Orleans style jazz, like the old, like, like Louis Armstrong and those two. I, but like, I'm lucky living in the Twin Cities. We have such a great music scene, like, yeah. and it's great. Um, I can't wait for stuff to open again so <laughs> people can get back on tour. And, but like, bands up here, like Pert Near Sandstone is great and Trampled by Turtles. Um, those are good good bands were friends friends with the bands too and it's just i can't wait to like get out and see them so i've been listening yes. to that a lot lately too and i you know i mean you and i talked i'm a huge jerry fan and i see your posters up behind you yes. so like like that that's always going to be a default i think i've been spinning a lot of vinyl lately too like that's been fun that's a, a new addiction probably or an old addiction re, 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 yes. revisited but there's a, a shop in town called the electric fetus that's been around since I think 1968 or 69. And oh, it's wow. just fun going in there and like flipping through all the records, you know, and mm-hmm. bringing them home. So like, um, I just picked up rolling. I really love the rolling stones. So I just picked up some like exile on main street or Baker's banquet. Nice. So those are fun too. What are you listening to these days? That's a great question. Like, um, um, black Pumas is a band I've been, I've been digging into. Um, out of Austin. Um, and uh, there's a um, Built a Spill uh, did an album that covered uh, Daniel Johnston's. You remember, you remember about Daniel Johnston, who was a songwriter? Um, mm-hmm. Pretty prolific. They did an album of all of his covers. And so um, I, I had my sort of my, my hippie side, but then bands like Built a Spill, I'm a big fan of uh, Sparkle Horse. They came out of Virginia. And, yep. um, you know, it, they're no longer around. Um, I think I away. saw them. I saw them at First Avenue in like the late nineties, if I recall. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Mark Linkus. And uh, basically no, I'm in the same boat. We used to go out and see a bunch of music and shows around town. Bands are either coming through. Um, but um, yeah, we're in hopes that we come back around at some point. We're going to get you down at our, our office in Richmond. We moved, we have a, a big, huge space and um, we have a place for uh, music at stage and we're positioned equally between like three music venues within like a mile away from each other. So we have lots of plans at some point to even I'm have excited. music at our, our office, but um, it was all part of the plan. <laughs> so, but <laughs> at some point it'll come back around. But um, no, to your point on um, listening to music when you're working, yeah, a lot of times if I'm focused and concentrated, no words, whether it's jazz or some long jam, that it allows me to sort of channel and focus. And even though it's going there, a lot of times I fall back to very familiar music, so I'm not sort of thinking too much about it. But. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll have to swap a list and and, and put some of these on the show notes. But, uh, Leah, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's so good to catch up again and hang out. And uh, anyway, have a a great um, great weekend. Thank you. You two. Thanks so much for having me. And take care. All right.